No e e Maori e a voice in Pacific waves e RNZ Pacific ngau le Koroi Hawkins. Coming up as to how the article can be clarified, can be improved so that there isn't um, these tricky tense situations. Some more court rulings on seats for women MPs underline a need for reform. I'm cautiously optimistic we will get some women in, not lots of them, but some will, I'm cautiously optimistic some will get in. Dame Carol Kidu is optimistic about chances for Papua New Guinea women in this year's election. One of the challenges countries in our region face is actually accessing uh, climate finance. And the head of the SPC says accessing climate finance is still a major challenge for Pacific countries. A Samoan academic says the latest ruling by the Samoan Supreme Court regarding the swearing-in of women MPs just underlines the need for a review of the country's electoral laws. The Supreme Court in Samoa today ordered Parliament Speaker to swear in three additional women MPs to the Legislative Assembly. This includes two opposition HRPP members and one from the ruling Fast Party, which, if carried out, would boost the number of seats in the House to 54. This would also bring the number of women MPs in the Assembly to seven, one more than required by the Constitution. To help navigate this complex situation, I'm joined by Auckland University law lecturer Fuimauno Dylan Asafo. Welcome back on Pacific Waves. I I think we should start by going backwards a bit. If you can please frame for us again the events that led to this issue originally ending up in court. Yes, so last June at the height of the Samoan constitutional crisis, the Court of Appeal, um, which is the highest court in Samoa, decided that the minimum number of women MPs required in Parliament is six. This was quite controversial because the text of the Constitution says the minimum or the quota is five women. But the court at the time took a liberal human rights interpretation to promote gender equality in Samoa and ruled that the minimum number of MPs should be six. Um, the Court of Appeal is the highest court, so that decision was final and cannot be challenged. So because there was only five women MPs elected at the time, it was clear that one more woman needed to be added. And according to the Constitution, the woman who should be added is the woman candidate who was unsuccessful in the election, but had the highest percentage of votes in her electorate compared to all other unsuccessful women candidates in their electorates. Um, And based on the result, the woman with the highest percentage of votes would be a woman from the HRPP. Um, And her name or title is Um, However, things got more complicated because the five women MPs then became four women MPs because one of the five, her title is Leota, um, had resigned. Um, And this is because she had an election petition brought against her and she chose to resign as a part of the settlement rather than having the court determine the petition. So then there's a need for two women MPs to fill that six women MP minimum. This remains the case because No woman um, won in the by-elections last November either. And so the next woman is also from the HRPP. And so um, the head of state issued a warrant of election guided by the Electoral Commissioner's calculation based on the constitution and said um, that these two women candidates who are unsuccessful should now um, be elected and sworn into parliament so that that six um, quota Um, can be met. Um, However, a week 
and a half later, the Speaker issued a press release saying that because the warrant in the Electoral um, Commissioner's calculation method uh, is being challenged by the Fast Party in court, that they would delay the swearing in of those two women until the court has made its decision. And so the two women from the HRPP, they challenged the Speaker's decision saying that it was unlawful, um, which was one of the proceedings um, that, the, that the Supreme Court decided on today. Thank you. And that brings us up to, to where we are now. So what is the ruling today and, and how does it, what, the, what are the actions and impacts? So the Supreme Court declared that the Speaker has a constitutional duty to swear in the two women from the HRPP as MPs um, as soon as possible um, without any delay. And also there is that um, further um, issue um, saying uh, that there should be a third um, woman added as well. Right. And and sorry, my math's a bit off here. So with the third woman added, would that then be seven? Yes. Um, very interesting because the addition of the third woman is a separate um, legal issue under the constitution. Um, the court isn't, sa- isn't saying or going back on what the Court of Appeal said last June and saying that there should be um, a minimum of seven. Um, they are saying that there's a different provision within the Constitution. Um, this is Article 44, Clause 1E, um, which says that if a woman resigns um, from her seat um, and a man is then elected to take on that seat, um, then um, a woman candidate who is um, unsuccessful but has the next um, highest percentage of votes um, is able to be um, elected and sworn in. So it's a completely um, separate issue in the court's view. They said that there's another provision within the constitution which allows um, a third woman to be added. Right, and that's for Liotta who resigned for re- regarding that petition um, issue that you mentioned earlier. Yes, because Liotta um, resigned um, and because a man took her um, place in the by-election, then it's um, according to that provision in the constitution, a third woman should be added, regardless of whether the constitutional quota of six has been met or not. Very interesting. Now, maybe just a bit of analysis from yourself, like all of, all of these intricacies, um, the, I guess the, at the core of it is, is women's participation in, in parliament, right? And, and do you see the laws matching up with that intention in, in your view? That is definitely what um, the court's uh, decision was driven by, um, was the need to promote um, gender um, equality, um, because the Attorney General uh, was trying to argue that there should not be a third woman added, um, and that Article um, 44, Clause 1E, um, should not be activated when the quota has been met up. So if there's already six, then there's no reason to put in a seven. Um, But... Um, the court was of the view that there should be seven, there should be another um, woman added, um, because it's not clear, um, or Parliament did not clearly um, say that if the quota is met up, then Article 44.1e cannot be activated. Um, they are two distinct provisions. And and um, um, probably, probably veering a bit away from the judgment now, the uh, for those interested, uh, my understanding is that uh, even with all of these changes, the fast party majority is is still quite large compared to HRPP. So no political movements as a result of all of this. Uh, no changes uh, in the majority um, at the moment. Fast has thirty one seats to HRPP's twenty two. 
now with with all of this this sort of are we at sort of the tail end of all of the the legal uh, challenges and uh, and this this period of of constitutional crisis, but also of of just Samoa's laws sort of standing up there and and charting a path out of of this kind of a, a crisis. Unfortunately, it's not clear um, if things are over. Um, parties can still challenge the Supreme Court's decision to the Court of Appeal. Um, so there is room for further developments um, regarding these seats um, held by the woman. Um, and also something that the crisis has um, shown is that Article 44 um, has been poorly drafted um, and that it's not entirely clear in these tricky situations what the courts or what um, political actors should do. Um, so there's a major need um, for Parliament to revisit um, the provision and to um, take submissions um, from the public as to how the article can be clarified, can be improved so that there isn't um, these tricky, tense situations after elections have taken place in the future. A tireless campaigner hoping to see more women in the Papua New Guinea Parliament, Dame Carol Kidu, says she's quietly optimistic there will be successes in the coming election. Nominations for the elections in July are due to start this week and a record number of women candidates is expected. There have been just seven women elected to the PNG Parliament in its nearly 50 years of existence, with none in the current Parliament. Dame Carroll was a cabinet minister for three terms, finishing in 2012, but has been active since, campaigning for more women MPs. Don Wiseman asked her how confident she is that more women might break through. I'm cautiously optimistic we will get some women in, not lots of them, but some will. I'm cautiously optimistic some will get in. But it's a very hard road now. It's a different scenario from when I was in politics. Is it a harder road than it was even for you? Oh, harder. Yeah, definitely harder because it's gone very strongly to big, what we call big man politics, tribal politics and money politics. That excludes many women. They just don't have the money to compete with the men when you think of their electorates. I mean, they have to travel to remote areas. They need helicopters, vehicles if there are roads available. They need outboard motors and dinghies. And they just don't have the logistical support that they need to get out there. Some of them have been really walking the talk for several months now, walking the mountains and things. And they certainly deserve to win. And they have the capacity to do a good job in there if they, you know, if they can adapt to Parliament. You've been involved with the training exercise through the ANU uh, to try and get more women in. So what did that involve? I've been advising the development partners for a long time that having workshops in hotels with all the aspiring candidates and teaching them about politics in a Western sense and the ideal sense, it's good for them, but it will not win them elections. Winning elections is a different matter in all countries. I've been saying you're targeting wrongly. We've got to get into community and we've got to change mindsets in community and get the mindset away from the idea that Parliament House is a house man and it's not for women. And also getting away from the the money and the now a lot of money is spent. Nowadays in politics, there's a lot of money spent. Huge amounts of money are spent encouraging people to vote in certain ones. I, ways. I mean... So is money spent in Australia, New Zealand, all sorts of countries. But this is kind of more blatant and more direct. It's unlikely that you're going to change it, Um, though, are you? No, but 
there is this a feeling in the communities, in the few that I've been to, that there's been a strong feeling coming through that people are tired of backing men because they feel nothing has changed in their lives by voting for men. And our slogan has been vote women for change and, and trying to focus on women who have done well in the past but not quite made it. Women who have been in the first five or first ten in, in, the, in an election. And knowing that in Papua New Guinea, over 40 people usually stand for each electorate. So to get into the first five or ten, you're doing pretty well. And so we've been focusing on those women going into their some of their communities in remote areas, working with the communities and working with their campaign team. But I have to be careful not to campaign. It's been awareness that I've been doing, awareness about what our constitution says about women in politics, awareness about the advantages of having women in, in parliament. So the training you did, you're talking about taking it away from the hotels and making it a less formal thing, getting into the communities. What did you say to these aspiring politicians? No, no, no. I didn't say to the aspiring politicians. I I said it to their coordinators, to their communities. Sometimes the aspiring politicians were not there. They helped organise it all, but we had to be very careful that it did not look like Australian aid was funding female candidates. I was working with their communities and trying to influence the mindset and helping their coordinators and their teams, their campaign teams on little tricks they could use to try to change mindsets, information that they could use to try to change people's mindsets. I was not working directly with the candidates when I went to community. Parallel with this, I also had mentoring sessions and we call it uh, mentoring circles where the whole the group of the women, they'd come together at my place in Moresby and we would do mentoring circles, and then I would be working directly with the candidates. But out in the community, they were kind of not too obvious because it could cause questions uh, because it was funded by, well, what was AusAid, by DFAD, Foreign Affairs of Trade Australia. Given that it's it's this very male-centred activity, traditionally anyway, what sort of support are you getting from the men? Because if you're going to get the women in, they're going to have to have the support of some men, aren't they? At the community meetings and the coordinator meetings, I had more men than women. It was really very encouraging. A lot of very good, strong men, counsellors and people who are there supporting the women. That's why I am cautiously optimistic we might break through this time. So when I was working in community, it was more men than women, actually, in most areas. Oh, that's interesting. And so, yeah, it was very interesting. And they were making the statement, why has this never been done before? Why hasn't our own government been doing these education programs? Because they had no idea that our national constitution is very clear in Goal 2, Directive Principle 5, that women citizens must have equal rights in politics, et cetera, et cetera, you know. And it was kind of, you used, you could literally see the lights going on and thinking, wow, we didn't know this. And there was yeah. a feeling of anger and frustration in some areas. Mm. Why have we never heard this before, you know? For a long time, there's been talk of reserved seats in PNG. Mm. I know that there was a very large yeah. campaign at about the time that you yourself pulled out of politics. Yeah, yeah I did a very big campaign in my final term. But, but it, it, came, didn't. it came to nothing. Yeah. In the recent parliament, again, there was an attempt to have some reserve seats. 
but it did not get passed in Parliament. It was not endorsed. But several new electorates have been formed. They've split some of the electorates and created seven new electorates. So that makes the space for women even less. So we need to really work on getting them in through the electoral process. In Bougainville, of course, yeah. you know Bougainville very well, and they have reserved seats for women. And there's been a sense at times that those women have been marginalised in those reserved seats. But now the situation in Bougainville is that there are five women of the 39 MPs, there are five yep. women in Parliament. So interesting, yeah. isn't it? Two won in the open seats yeah. against the men. So it's, it's really quite encouraging. The Director General of the Pacific Community says accessing climate finance remains a challenge in the Pacific. The Pacific Community, or SPC, is the region's premier international development organisation owned and governed by 27 Pacific countries and territories. Dr Stuart Minchin told RNZ Pacific's Moira Tula-Patela that it has a division of climate change and environmental sustainability that works specifically to help countries with climate finance because it's such a complex process. One of the challenges countries in our region face is actually accessing uh, climate finance through mechanisms like the Green Climate Fund or the Adaptation Fund. So we actually provide a, a service for our members where we assist them with the application process and, and all of the hoops that they've got to jump through to access climate finance. As well as that, um, uh, across our whole portfolio, not just in our climate change division, division but in our fisheries and uh, marine ecosystems division, in our agriculture division, um, and uh, uh, even public health and, and, uh, and other areas, we're actively working on climate change projects. So a great example out of... Um, the COP26 20, uh, was the, uh, you, you may have seen this in the news, the news about uh, Pacific tuna uh, moving in response to climate change and the patterns of um, uh, the, the tuna uh, aggregations actually moving out of uh, what are exclusive economic zones of Pacific countries and into international waters in the future in response to climate change and the impacts that that will have on uh, royalties and income to Pacific nations is very important. So that uh, was critical work. It was published in Nature Sustainability and it was released around the uh, COP26 process and it was done by our scientists. So um, SPC does uh, really... Uh, critical work in all of these these areas in the agriculture space where um, uh, we we manage the, uh, uh, the, um, the seed bank effectively for Pacific crops uh, which is based in um, in Fiji and uh, that allows us to uh, keep track of and and, and provide um, uh, um, seedlings and 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 seeds um, to allow recovery when when there are cyclones and 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 disasters that occur so for example with the recent tonga um, uh, volcano and tsunami we were able to provide uh, immediately a hundred thousand dollars worth of seeds directly to tonga to allow them to immediately replant and uh, and um, support their food system uh, getting back on its feet straight after the uh, the, the disaster so. i was just thinking actually as you're saying it because um, obviously samoa and american samoa were hit by a tire blight a couple mm. of years ago in the 90s from memory after one of the cyclones so obviously 
they would have benefited from a project like this. Absolutely. So uh, CPACT, which is uh, this facility that uh, is, as, is our effectively genetic um, um, library of, of crops and, and trees, is actually the, uh, the largest taro um, uh, repository for, for, for taro um, uh, genetic resources in, in, the, in, the, in the world. And we've even used that to reseed and send material back to, over to Africa where it's uh, actively grown because we're seen as the... Um, uh, you know the global centre for tarot in, in that sense, and I, I guess COVID would have put a little bit of a pause on some of the projects in the region. COVID uh, had a real impact, of course. Um, in some ways, there were some aspects of projects that were unable to be done without the travel that, that was there, but we were actually able to innovate and, uh, and in some ways uh, we've found ways to achieve more with other aspects of the project. So a great example is we run uh, many training courses that we've traditionally uh, for capacity building in the region. Traditionally, we would fly people in. Uh, they would you know, sit physically in a room, and you might reach 30 people in a, in a training course. But by moving those to online training, we've been able to, um, you know, tackle 200 or 250 people because they don't have to do the physical travel anymore, and they can sit in their own ministry in their own country and still uh, access this this knowledge. So, uh, it hasn't been a complete disaster. It's been actually um, uh, we've been able to adjust and be nimble and um, actually still achieve the outcomes that, that we're looking for for most projects. There are of course examples where we've had to delay and and, and put things off, but we've been uh, remarkably effective in in uh, in finding innovative ways to to work around the, um, the COVID problem. And now that it's opening back up, there's more opportunity to now uh, deliver on those things that have been delayed, so that, that require physical presence. Yeah, and I guess because SPC obviously been in the region for now for 75 years, mm-hmm. and I, some of the projects obviously which initially started off there would have changed so much. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting history. One of the things we're doing this year in our 75th year is we're going to do some... Um, uh, um, analysis of what SBC has achieved over that entire 75-year history because there'll be things that we did 20 or 25 or 30 years ago that are having a direct impact today on uh, Pacific nations because um, it may be the education support that we provided back there. Um, we, a- we actually find that many of the, um, uh, the politicians in the region have uh, either been directly impacted by SBC through training or, or uh, development or they've worked for us in many cases. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, the footprint that SBC has in this region should, is hard to, to, to overestimate because it, um, uh, we've been around for so long, uh, we've done critical programs. There is Pacific Waves, a.e. Fuamus Ma'alulum. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us.